So how do you know that you have been born again? The Bible way. Well, there is a, there is a doctrinal test which has to do with what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God, creator of the heavens and the earth, who took upon himself the form of a, a man and came to this earth and shed his blood on the cross and died for your sins, that he is God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings? Do you believe that he conquered death and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Well, there, are, there is that doctrinal test There is also a practical test. How do you behave? Not only what you believe, but how do you behave? And a big part of our behavior is relationships with other people. No no matter how hard I try, I just can't get away from people. They are everywhere. And you know, God's Word has much to say in that regard. The New Testament is filled with with what we call one another commands. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment, and let me stop right there. I mean, that doesn't mean that this was not taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had plenty to say about love. But it's under the new covenant, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to perform that which the Old Testament saints did not have. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love, biblical love, for one another. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. We are in Romans 12, actually. But back to Romans chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Christian love we see here is generated and motivated, I believe, by the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer. Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit, what is the first one? Is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 John 3, 4 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life. Right? That we've been born again. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. Hasn't been born again. The theme of love dominates the next few verses in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. And then Paul will speak of it again in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. So I titled this message, Love Alive in the Church. It has to be visible. It has to be active. It has to be alive in the church. Paul, Paul began this chapter by talking about 
you know, spiritual gifts. We began by you know, presenting our bodies to Christ, but then he t- goes into spiritual gifts. He talks about, we talked about these things. He did that in 1 Corinthians 12, but then what happened in 1 Corinthians 13? He talks about what? Love. And, he, and really what he's pointing out is you can have the greatest of spiritual gifts, the best of experiences, all of these things, but without love, the, even the exercise of spiritual gifts will profit nothing. So this is very significant. And, and the commands here in Romans chapter 12 will come in, come in rapid fire. And, and we'll look at them in due time. But he begins with the, the fact that love in the church must be genuine. He says, let love, and the Greek word there is agape, be without dissimulation. That's the old King James word. It really means free of hypocrisy. And there is no verb in here, let love be. The Greek reads simply this, love without hypocrisy. It's that simple. And he uses the word agape here. Now I know that, you know, you've probably heard that in, in, among the Greeks and, and Romans there was phileo love, you know, brotherly love, uh, eros, which is romantic, erotic type of a love, and agape, which people say is the highest love. It's the divine ideal. Well, that, that's not necessarily true. And certainly not in every instance. The world loves its own. It, it, it agapes its own. So it doesn't mean a high divine ideal. Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having agaped this present world. That's certainly not no divine ideal type of a love. So agape love, as I've really worked through this, <clears throat> and I can't claim that I have all the information on it, <clears throat> but this much is a fact. It means to love intentionally, deliberately. And in a good sense, because agape, Demas Demas loved the world. That's a bad sense. But in a good sense, it means to love with the intention of doing good for the object loved. So you're setting aside oftentimes your own will to do good for somebody else. That's love. And then he says, let your love be without hypocrisy, anopokritos in the Greek. The root word is upokrisis, which meant, referred to a stage playing, an actor on a stage, what we would call histrionics. So, you know, you just think of a person playing a part in a, in a, in a, in a, in a stage play. It's not them. Oftentimes they're hiding behind a mask to conceal their identity, to play the character there that they're acting out. That's hypocrisy in, 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 in one sense. People can act a certain way, but they're, they think differently. They feel differently. You, you can feign like you care about somebody, but you really don't, and that's hypocrisy. That's absolute hypocrisy. James 3.17 says, The wisdom that is from above, heavenly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, mark that word down, without hypocrisy. 
I was reading a commentary, and the, uh, the author said this in the New International Virgin, uh, Version. It says, it renders, love must be sincere. Sincere. And our, our English word, sincere, comes from the Latin word sinceros, which literally meant without wax. Without wax. And that stemmed from the practice of the early Roman merchants who would put out their vases and and, uh, their earthen jars for sale. And if a crack appeared in one of those jars, they would fill it with wax. They would fill it with wax, the same color as the jar. So it was deceptive. So a buyer would be unaware that the the, the vessel was cracked. But smart buyers learned to to put put these... vessels or jars out toward the sun and hold them toward the sun for a while. And if the jar was cracked, the, the sun would melt the crack or the light of the sun would expose the crack and they wouldn't want to buy that type of a cracked vessel. So honest merchants would test their, their goods this way and the honest ones would mark their vessels that they put out for sale Sincera, without wax. This is the kind of a people that we are to be, without wax, without deception. Love is that way. One of the hardest parts of being a Christian is acting like one. Without insincerity. When the sin nature is telling you otherwise. To forgive someone who asks forgiveness when they have treated you badly. To go the extra mile when you barely finished the first. To give your coat as well as your cloak. To love someone who is difficult to love. Now we all know Christians who are easy to love. And others who are difficult to love. And when I talk about loving a Christian, we, gotta, we have to love each other. We have, there's no way around it. The New Testament is full of that. I have to love you. I don't have to like you. <laughs> right? Now, don't, don't jump on me for that. There are people we like, right? Because we have things in common and we enjoy being in their company and, and they smile and they're friendly. And, so, and there are other people who are not. We still have to love them if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So the model for Christian love is its founder, Jesus Christ. So from him and his example, we learn a number of things that I want to share with you that I call the marks of Christian love. I could, I could preach multiple sermons on this, multiple sermons on Romans or 1 Corinthians 13, where all the characteristics of love are there. But I wanted to focus on these. these this is what the Spirit of God put on my mind and on my, on my heart. Number one, Christian love is an active love. It's more than words. 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, now, there's nothing wrong with you telling somebody you love them, right? That's loving them in, in, in words. But in deed and in truth. 
It has to go just beyond your words. You have to demonstrate your Christian love to other people. That's an active love. That's love that is alive. Secondly, Christian love is sacrificial. We, we just need to look to Jesus. For scarcely for a righteous man will one day die, Paul said in Romans 5, 7, yet peradventure for a good man someone might even dare die. But God commendeth. That means he proved his love toward us in while we are yet sinners. Or were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the language of sacrifice. Galatians 1, 3, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That's the language of sacrifice. That's the love of sacrifice. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will, will of God and our Father. And, and I say without hesitation that the death of Jesus Christ for sinners was the greatest act of giving, the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. Because of the person who did it. Who didn't have to do it. Thirdly, Christian love is noticeably different than the way the unsaved world loves. And by that I mean it extends love even to its enemies. Unthinkable. Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You have heard it been said, You love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them who hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you. And nobody likes to be used. If there's one thing that'll get under my skin or your skin is when someone's taken advantage of us, right? And persecute you. That takes it a step further. Love your enemies. Jesus is speaking here of a personal enemy of yours. Your personal enemies. He, he told the disciples that one day your enemies would be those of your own household, your close circle, your family. Now let me say this when he says love your enemies. It's very obviously that this is not feeling-based love. Romantic love is feeling-based love. <gasps> Love at first sight. It's not biblical love. It's impossible to be biblical love. It's, it's, I like the way this person looks. It's love at first sight. It's this, this feeling, this romance, this sentiment. Well, you don't, you don't feel that way about your enemies. But it's love which requires a deliberate act of the will. That's how you can love your enemies in spite of what they've done to you, Jesus said. To do something good in return for evil that's been done to you. And it begins with praying for your personal enemies if you have any. It could be an unsaved family member. Hopefully not a saved family member. It could be a jealous co-worker. Or it could be the boss you have to put up with every day that you, you, you don't like. You don't have to like them because love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's doing something for them, 
for their good, even when you don't feel like it. Down in Romans 12, further at the end of the chapter, Paul says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. Do something good for him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll, re- you'll heap whole coals of fire upon his head, and we'll explain that when we get there. But he says this, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's living love. Now, if you're required to show love to an enemy like that, someone who has, who has been doing something you know, wrongful to you and doesn't care about you, how much more are you required to love your fellow brethren in the church? How much higher of a love should that be? Galatians 6.10, Paul says, As we have, therefore, opportunity. And let me just say, there are plenty of opportunities in the church to love somebody. As we therefore have opportunity, Galatians 6.10, let us do good unto all men, especially, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. That's your brothers and sisters in this room. That might be the person who you see every Sunday morning and you walk by and you don't even lift your head up and say hello and smile. Or ask, how's it going with you? It's everyone. Love must be alive in the church because it comes from the life-giving, life-empowering Holy Spirit of God. If love is not alive, visible and thriving in a church, the church is dying. It's dying. David Gibson, he listed three symptoms of a dying church. I like this. Number one, churches are dying when they begin speaking angry words toward other believers. James 1.9 says, Do you not know this, my beloved brethren? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1.26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Churches are dying when people begin speaking angry words to each other in the church. Number two, churches are dying when they begin drawing ugly lines. They may not even see the lines they're drawing. What do I mean by that? When they're showing partiality. When they're forming cliques in a church. When they seem to gravitate and associate with certain people, but they won't gravitate or they won't associate or they won't pray with other people in the church. That's not healthy. The Corinthians were doing that. They were dividing along party lines. James 2.2 says, if there come a man into your assembly with a gold ring and goodly apparel and there comes in a poor man in vile raiment and you have respect to him that wears the, you know, the The gay apparel, the Bible says, it just means, you know, clashy, loud, expensive. But you say to him, sit here in a good place, and you you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there. 
or, or you sit under, un, under my footstool. You, 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 you know, you're, you're kinda, you don't fit in here. Are you then not partial in yourselves and you become judges of evil thoughts? Partiality is not genuine love. Thirdly, churches are dying when they begin ignoring good works and become self-centered. The church is the extension of the life of Christ on earth. If there was anyone who was ever not self-centered, it was Jesus. It wasn't about what he could get, but what he could do and what he did do, what he gave. He did not come to be served, the scripture says, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So churches are dying when they begin ignoring good works and become self-centered. James 2.26, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from what? From works is dead. Revelation 2.9, To the church of Thyatira, Jesus said, I know thy works and love and service and faith and patience and thy works. He repeats it. And the last to be more than the first. So this was a church where love was alive with works. With people doing things for other people. Believers. Now, there are other symptoms of a dying church. But I think these are crucial because they all stem from a lack of genuine love. Anger stems from a lack of genuine love. Partiality stems from from a lack of genuine love. Self-centeredness stems from a lack of genuine love. Fourthly, Christian love is an enduring love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. You know, I was just thinking, how, how quickly do you give up on people? I tried with them. Didn't get anywhere. Some people think you know they could just make one half-hearted effort, and and that's it. That's all that's required of them. I tried. Christian love is not a fickle kind of love. It's not present one moment and then gone the next. It, it's not bipolar love marked by mood swings. If a Christian husband or a Christian wife is never certain what kind of reaction they're going to get from their marriage partner, something's wrong with their professing love. Love is consistent. Now that doesn't mean we always consistently love the way we ought to love. I don't. But it is something we are to strive for. And it is something that we are to repent of if we're not doing. And seek God's grace so that we could do that. Love is consistent. It never gives up. You know what I find interesting? You know, Jesus, the Bible says that John was the apostle that Jesus loved. And so there, there was this very close bond with John that he had. John mentioned, listen to this, 
John mentioned love 19 times in his gospel, 23 times in his first epistle, four times in his second epistle, and once in his third epistle, 47 times in all. Tell me it's not important. And you know what? He assumed his readers already knew about it. He said this in 2 John 5, Now I beseech you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto you, but that which you had from the beginning, that you love one another. I'm not telling you anything new when I tell you this 47 times. You heard it from Jesus. Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, But as touching brotherly love... You need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. You know what that tells me? I could quit right now. Because I'm not telling anything you telling you anything that you haven't heard over and over and over again in your life as a Christian. But it's necessary to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because we all know about love. It's just hard to love. Especially unlovely people. And there are are plenty of unlovely people in the world. I've known some very unlovely Christians. Peter called believers to fulfill their high calling to love one another, he says, with genuine love. The same thing that Paul says, 1 Peter 1.22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love. That's sincere love. See that you love one another with a pure heart. And then he adds this word, fervently, fervently. Ektenos in the Greek. And this comes from a verb meaning to stretch out. It was used of athletes as they were stretching out and you could see their muscles flexing. So what he's basically telling us, because it talks about being fully stretched out. So I think this tells me that love goes beyond the normal limits. It, it stretches itself out. And you know, sometimes stretching, here's what I found, is painful. Right? As a matter of fact, if, if, you, if you don't stretch out for a week or so, whatever, whatever the thing is, then you go back to do, what happens? You do the same stretches and you feel the pain until you stretch those muscles out. And that's what good athletes do. You know, they're, they're, they're loose. They're limber. They're stretched out. And that's what we have to do with our, our love. It reaches out to fellow believers. It's not slack. It's proactive more than reactive. I mean, are you proactive with your love or do you only react to people who show you love? And we're to love without expecting to get anything in return, right? That's what the Bible says. So continuing on here in Romans, he says, love without hypocrisy and then in the latter part of verse 9, abhor that which is evil. I mean, what a, what a dynamic contrast. He's talking about love, and then all of a sudden, abhor comes into the conversation. 
Or pour that which is evil. The, the verse, the Greek verb is stugeo, with the stem apo from it. And we'll explain that in a minute. But just because God is loving doesn't mean he turns a deaf ear and a blind eye to evil. His holiness and his justice forbid that. There's some tough verses in the Bible. I don't have all the answers for them. Psalm 5.5, 5, the, the foolish will not stand in thy sight. That's in the sight of God. Speaking of God, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. You don't hear that preached too often. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Psalm 139, 21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, who hate thee? Am I not grieved with those who rise up against you? Here's what he said, David. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Love hates that which is evil. Adam Clark says that that word stugeo, which means abhor, is related to sticks, S-T-Y-X. This was a a mythological river in hell by which the gods were to want to swore that if any of them falsified an oath, he was deprived of the nectar and ambrosia for a hundred years that that flowed from that river. So hence the river was reputed to be hateful and stugeo signified to be as hateful as hell. Strong word. Christians love, detests what is evil, the word implies loathing, abhorrence, disgust. The present tense calls for continuous action to be on guard for evil and to be repulsed at the thought of evil. One commentator says, hate sin as much as you hate the hell to which it leads. Hate sin as much as you hate the hell to which it leads. Abhor, hate what is evil? Evil is poneros. And it means a determined, aggressive, and fervent evil that actively opposes what is good. The divine ideals. The divine morality. The greatest evil today is the evil of abortion. Christians are opposed to abortion Because they want to do good for the life in the womb. They love the innocent. And they hate those who take the life of the innocent. Now let let me, you know, this is, just remember this. Because we're, we're we're, we're conflicted sometimes. God loves the world. God hates all workers of iniquity. What do you do with that? Well, love is not an emotion. Love is an action. A deliberate intention of the will. So God loved the world and he acted in behalf of an undeserving world, and he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have an everlasting life. But he hates 
all workers of iniquity. He will act intentionally against all workers of iniquity. Because their sin is repulsive to his very being, to the very core of his being. Christians hate the evil of abortion because it seeks to kill the innocent. But their hatred for the abortionist should not be an emotion. Just like love is not an emotion or a feeling. Although you can love and you have feelings when you do love in the right and proper way. But their hatred for abortion and abortionists who commit them means that they act deliberately. Not in to get in their face and scream at them and to firebomb their abortion clinics and do, do all kind of evil things. They act, though, to expose them. To pray for God to take his vengeance upon those who will not repent of their murderous deeds. They support those who seek to legislate an end to abortion. They try to reach the women who are considering an abortion because many of them have been deceived by a bunch of lies. So they're not going there heaping guilt on them. They're trying to explain to them the truth about the life in their womb. They counter the lies with the truth. They support pro-life pregnancy centers. According to the Family Research Council, there, listen to this, there have been a hundred attacks on churches, pro-organization, pro-life organizations, pregnancy care centers since May 2nd. You hear nothing about that on the liberal news networks. Those are people who hate what is good. It's all twisted. It's all upside down. There is, a, there is a man in Philadelphia, I don't have, know his name, he's an evangelist. There's a, there's a group he sings with called the King's Men. He's an abortion sidewalk counselor. He helps men break the bondage of pornography. He's an evangelist. And he was doing what he always done for, did for years in Philadelphia, trying to counsel women going into having an abortion to not have an abortion. And he was arrested because of this new uh, law that the, the president got through, which you, you, you cannot restrict access to an abortion clinic. So even if you're talking to somebody, they could accuse you of this, doing this, restricting access to an abortion clinic. So it was thrown out from what I read by the Philadelphia courts. But not, not long ago, get this, early in the morning, This man has seven beautiful children. I think some of them are adopted. 25 FBI agents, 15 uh, FBI vehicles, rifles in his front yard, knocked on his door and pulled him out of his house in front of his children and his wife and arrested him for trying to save the life of the innocent. You don't hate something like that? With godly hatred? What's happening? Listen, one more thing. Christians can combat the evil of abortion not with nasty words, 
but by making themselves available to adopt the children who might mother otherwise be killed. Human Life International says, there are no really, it's hard to get national statistics on how many people are waiting to adopt, but experts estimate it is somewhere between one and two million couples are waiting, wanting a child. But only 4% of the women who have unwanted pregnancies place their children up through adoption. 4%. You draw a circle. That's about this much of the wedge of the circle. So we should be directing our prayers to, the, the, to these ends. That these women would be willing to give up their child through adoption. And that man who was arrested at the abortion clinic in Philadelphia, that's what he was trying to do. Saying somebody wants that baby. We could help you find a good person, a good home. On a personal level, when you think about evil, Proverbs 4.26, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Listen, remove your foot from evil. Remove it. Now the word ponder there in Proverbs 4.26 in a moral sense means to think deliberately about something. You are faced with choices every day. Many of them are not moral choices. There's no right or wrong connected with the choice of what you had for breakfast. But there could be consequences to all the choices that we make. But there are those choices that are moral choices. Clearly right or clearly wrong. And when it comes to good and evil, the Christian's choice is clear. We must not entertain the thought of doing something evil. Exodus 23.2 says, You shall not follow the crowd in doing evil. Listen to me. Psalm 1. Psalm 1, right? You know what it is? Who knows Psalm 1? Blessed are those who what? Who knows it? Say it out. Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Right. But you know the rest of it, how it goes on. So you walk, you stand, you seat. Sit. You get closer and closer. And that's what happens oftentimes with people following the crowd. Listen to me, young people. Hopefully you old people, you've already got this message. Young people, don't even begin to go their way. I'll tell you why. Because it's easier to do evil in a crowd. Right? Look what we went through with the riots in 2020. That all that Black Lives Matter stuff, burning vehicles down, burning, trying to burn courthouses down, you know, throwing fireworks at cops. There's an energy that comes from the crowd. And it's easier to follow evil in a crowd. Now listen to me. If you, listen young people, don't fall asleep on me. If you have to stand alone in doing what is right, then stand alone. Show me this picture. 
1936. Hitler's rise to power. They're commissioning a ship in a German shipyard. And everybody is doing Heil Hitler. Except that one man. You see him? His arms are crossed. I want you young people to remember that. He could have been killed right then and there. But he would not follow the crowd. It's a powerful image. The lone man was August Landmesser. The year was 1936. He had a Jewish wife. Eventually the Nazis separated her from him. And he never saw her again. Tick tock. Not that tick tock. The tick tock of social media. Which kids love. It's inherently dangerous because it identifies the age of its users and listen to this, subsequently creates a feed of videos that will harm them. The Wall Street Journal's investigative team evaluated the safety claims promised by TikTok when they recently created dozens of fake accounts of 13 to 15-year-olds known as BOTS, B-O-T-S. The BOTS were programmed with interests typical of young teens and were instructed to scroll through TikTok's For You video feeds. Listen to this. This was a setup. TikTok responded by serving them explicit content. Within three days, their accounts were fed a steady stream of 2,800 videos featuring drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, and pornography. You think that's a safe place for teens to be on? Adolescents are susceptible to the influence of the social media challenges that TikTok has aimed at them, and many of them have died doing those challenges. Why are they doing it? Why? Why? Because they seek attention. Young teens seek attention. They they seek acceptance from their peers in the form of likes. Right? Likes. Facebook likes. It's all out there. The world, parents, is after your Children. Love like what is good and abhor what is evil. Genuine Christian love clings to what is good. Kalao is the word cling. And you know what you know what it means? It comes from a word meaning glue. So you're to be repulsed by evil as a Christian and hate it, but you're to be glued to the good. Glued to the good. Jesus says, for this cause will a man leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. Same word. 
cling to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. You can't get any closer than that. The word is used for sexual union in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Despise evil, pursue, cling to what is good. Now listen to me. Cling to what is good as if your life depends on it. Young people, it just might. It just might. So the image when I was thinking it is clinging, the image in my mind is one of a rock climber tenaciously holding onto the small ledges of a rock face hundreds of feet off the ground. You see that? That is Alex Honnold. How many of you have heard of him? Alex Honnold in 2017 climbed Yosemite without ropes. No equipment of any kind. If he fell, he died. And that climb of Yosemite, El Capitan, has been called the single greatest athletic feat in human history. And if you've been there and you've seen it, you'd say, Amen. Because if he lost his grip on a rock, at any point he's fell to his death. Listen to me. Some of the ledges that he held onto with his fingers were the width of two credit cards. They've, they've zoomed in on somebody's. Two credit cards. Now, he's a remarkable athlete, and yet he's not even regarded as the best climber in the world. He's the best solo climber in the world. But there are some incredible climbers that have climbed peaks that they've deemed unclimbable. And no human being could climb them. I don't know what they got, spider glue or what. But you see that picture? Put that picture back up there. Did you go back a bit? Cling to what is good. That is how we have to cling to what is good. Because if we lose our grip, our spiritual grip on the truths revealed in God's word and his commandments, we are in perilous position in life. Cling to what is good. 